Father in heaven, thank you that through Christ Jesus, we will have endless days to be able to sing the greatness of your praises. Through Christ Jesus, we have the hope of eternal life. We have the promise that you will come again and take us to be where you are so that we will be with you always, Lord. What a promise. What a hope that we have. And, and like in the book of Revelation, how the elders would cast their crowns before you so we will take all of our accomplishments and lay them at your feet. And as the living creatures would, would stand and praise, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So we, Lord God, look forward to that day when for endless days we will praise your matchless name. And thank you that we can, Lord God, because, because of who you are. You are the one who was. You are the one who is. You are the one who is to come. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because of who you are, we can praise you endlessly. We are glad to offer our praise to you now and to now turn our attention towards your eternal, unchanging word that we might find strength and confidence to live our lives for your glory. Help us now in this way, in Jesus' name, amen. Churches, you're taking your seats. Please open your Bible with me to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, and we're going to consider verse 1 to 6 today. Now let's start the message off with, um, with an elementary school science lesson. Some of you might already be groaning. It's like, oh, really? I didn't like science. I don't like science. All right, let's imagine I had two spheres Two spheres of the same size, of the same diameter. And let's say I was holding them and you could only look at them. I wonder, how would we be able to determine, or what would enable us to determine, which is heavier than the other? Let's say with one sphere, it was a bowling ball, and the other sphere, it was a volleyball. Now, you probably noticed from experience that the volleyball is going to be lighter and the bowling ball is going to be heavier. All right, let's say the volleyball was then filled with sand and now it's a tether ball. Okay, we have a tether ball, we have a bowling ball. Which one's heavier? How would we know? Well, the bowling ball would likely be heavier because of its density, right? Things might be equal size, equal diameter, but the heavier object is the denser object. And density is the molecules are more tightly packed together. There's more substance in it, so it's heavier. Now, there's a lot of topics that we cover and consider in the scripture, and some of them might look like they have, have equal importance, but some of, the, some of them are just, some of the topics in Scripture are just heavier to carry because they're denser in our soul. And that's what we're talking about today, a dense topic, a heavy topic. Today's topic from the story of Ruth is about suffering. Suffering is dense. Suffering is heavy. It's a heavy and a weighty topic to talk about because of the pain that we experience in suffering. It's a heavy and weighty top, topic to cover because it's how personal and so close to us. But one of the reasons I'm so thankful for God's word is because through its stories and through its teachings, um, it, the whole human experience is comprehensively looked at. And nothing is taboo. So, Today, we can look at our suffering and learn how we can find hope in it. And the hope that Naomi finds in this story, Naomi and her family finds, is great. 
The heights of the hope are so excellent and so satisfying, but in order to be able to see how high and how great the hope that Naomi finds, we need to first recognize the depth of the suffering that she experiences. And you might be going through some deep suffering right now. And you might even be hiding it. The Apostle Paul, who seemed to be one of the strongest, boldest Christians who ever lived in 2 Corinthians 1, said that he experienced a deep type of suffering that he expressed in 2 Corinthians 1 was like he was burdened far beyond his strength so that he even despaired of life itself. He said that it was so despairing that he felt that he had been given a sentence of death. But then he said, even in the midst of it, he could have hope because he believed in a God who raises the dead. So I've been praying for you this week. I've been praying that even if you may feel like you were burdened down and weighed down by suffering, or maybe if you felt like you're, you've been running on fumes, that today you, your faith would be filled up with the preaching of God's word. And that if you're not going through suffering today, when the time comes and you do go through suffering, that you would know where you can go so you can get fueled up when you feel like you're running on empty. So as we do, would you stand together with me to honor God as we read his word together? Ruth chapter one, verse one to six. This is God's word. It speaks to us today and this is what it says. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. You can take your seats. What we see in Naomi's life is that her tragedy causes de a devastation to her life. And what we're going to learn today is that suffering it may devastate your life, but hope can be found when we wait on God. Suffering may devastate your life, but hope can be found when we wait on God. At the end of the passage in verse 6, there's a glimmer of hope. And at the end of this message, there will be a glimmer of hope. But we're going to see through this passage the three ways that suffering devastated Naomi's life. And there will be a glimmer of hope at the end of this passage at the end of this sermon, but things will go from bad to worse before we get to that hope. So what are the three ways that suffering devastated Naomi's life? Well, first, suffering can trigger unthinkable decisions. Maybe you've experienced this. Suffering can trigger unthinkable decisions, and we can find ourselves in a frame of mind that we find ourselves doing something that we previously thought we never would have ever in a million years done. And suffering, suffering does this to us. It triggers unthinkable decisions because it's like, it's like suffering turns the heat up 
on the pot. And without even noticing it, all of a sudden it's at a raging boil. And all you want to do is try and stop it from boiling over. And, and in the midst of being frantically trying to stop it, you can, get, you can burn yourself. Suffering can trigger unthinkable decisions. Suffering actually happens, the scripture says, because of a combination of one of four different factors. Suffering happens in our lives because of our own sinful decisions. You know, you, you shouldn't be surprised if the building collapses on yourself if you build the building in a really bad way. Suffering can happen because of our own sinful decisions. It can happen because of the sinful decisions of others. Things people do to us that we had no control over. Suffering can happen because of the brokenness of a world that we live in. We live in a sinful world. And it shouldn't be surprising to us when in a broken world, chaos can abound. Suffering happens because of the sinful decisions of others, the brokenness of a sinful world, our own sinful decisions. And suffering also happens because we have a real spiritual enemy, demonic powers that want to attack the people of God and keep those who are lost still lost. And when suffering happens and the pot boils over, desperate times push us to desperate measures. And we can make decisions that we previously thought were unthinkable. That's what happened to Naomi's family. And we see the desperate time that she lived in in verse 1. Look at it there with me. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The time of the judges was a time of tremendous instability for the nation of Israel. There was uh, political instability, economic instability, spiritual instability. But it was an instability created by themselves. Because of their own sinfulness. See, God had delivered his chosen people, Israel, out from Egypt, brought them through the wilderness, and now they finally were in the land that he promised. The land that he promised to their forefather, Abraham. And God promised to Abraham that when their family became as big as a nation and came into the land that he promised them, that they would be blessed there, that they would prosper there. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. But there was a famine. You see, because in the time of the judges, Israel did whatever was right in their own eyes. The blessing that they could enjoy would have been enjoyed if they followed God's way, if they worshipped him alone, but they didn't. They turned to the gods of their neighbors, and they worshipped false gods, and they did whatever was right in their own eyes. And there was this cycle that happened throughout the time of Judges. You can track it if you read the cycle. The cycle starts with uh, turning to false idols. And then God punishes them by sending an enemy nation in to oppress them. But then, if they're sick of their oppression, they repent and say, Oh, forgive us for worshiping false idols. Then God would send a judge, a local military leader, to raise up and deliver them from their oppressors. And then they would be return to true worship of God again and enjoy prosperity. But not too long later, they'd turn back to idols. Wash, rinse, repeat. That's the story of Judges. So it's likely that the famine in the land was a result of God punishing them for turning to idolatry. And this famine triggered Naomi's family to make decisions that they would have otherwise considered completely unthinkable. First thing that they did that was probably really unthinkable was they decided to leave their home and live as sojourners. In the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land and the man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn. 
You know, twice the author tries, makes it clear that this is a family from a specific geographical location, right? They're from Bethlehem, the city, in Judah, the, tri the tribe. But then they specify a little bit clearer what a family they are from in this tribe. It says that they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. Judah was the tribe, like the region. Bethlehem was the city. And the Ephrathites were the clan, like the specific family. Some scholars believe that the Ephrathites descended from a prominent figure in the Old Testament named Caleb. You might remember Caleb. While Israel was wandering through the wilderness, Moses sent, spent, sent 12 spies into the promised land to like scope out what they needed to do to be able to conquest and take the land. The spies came back, and 10 of them were like, they're giants. We, we can't do it. And two of them said, there are giants, but God can do it. Right? Those two people were Joshua and Caleb. And it was because the people listened of Israel listened to the ten stupid spies, and it was because they listened to those foolish spies that they wandered for 40 years. And an entire generation died in the wilderness, except for Joshua and Caleb. So when they got into the promised land, God honored Caleb's faith and kind of gave him first pick of the litter. Hey, you, Caleb, whatever land you want, you get that land. And apparently, he picked this place in Bethlehem in Judah and was the first forefather of the Ephrathite clan. So Naomi's family was, came from like a prominent family, well-known family, well-known city, well-known location. But this is where they're from, but they decide to be sojourners. They're in a like, like condo downtown, well-known name, but they're like, now, you know what, let's just sell all we have and live in a van, right? I have TELUS as my carrier. Some of you might have Rogers, right? Rogers isn't just a business name, right? Rogers is a, is a family name. Ted Rogers was the guy who started Rogers. Imagine if you heard, or headline in the news, Ted Rogers' kids lose all they have and live in a van. That's like kind of what happened to Naomi's family. They decide that we just need food and, 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 and we, we need to leave to be able to find it. They decided to leave their homes as sojourners, and sojourning was a dangerous life. There are a lot of passages in the Old Testament that say, don't abuse sojourners. God protects sojourners. And the reason it was likely that those passages were given and those commands were given is because a lot of people abused sojourners. So this prominent family, desperate for food in a famine, picked a dangerous lifestyle. But not only a dangerous lifestyle, they lived that dangerous lifestyle in a shameful way. They don't stay in the promised land. They leave the promised land to go to enemy territory, Moab. In that culture, that was probably a really shameful thing. Well, why? Uh, because Moab and Israel had a really dicey history. When Israel was traveling through the wilderness, going to the promised land, the king of Moab at the time looked at the traveling nation and were like, whoa, they're big. And if they're, they could take over my land. So I'm going to do what I can to stop that. So the king of Moab hired this witch doctor 
named Balaam, who had a donkey, who had eventually spoke to him. Kind of, it's in the book of Numbers, you can read it. And Balaam was hired, this witch doctor, by the king of Moab to curse the people of God. And that kind of backfired. But then Balaam had a different idea. All right, so how do I trip up this people? How about I go ask the women of Moab to go and seduce the men of Israel to offer them to sleep with them if they worship their false gods? That actually worked. The Moabite women seduced Israelite men, committed sexual immorality with them, and turned the Israelite men to worship Baal, the false god. And for punishment of that, God had, God allowed 26,000 Israelites to die because of their sin. Yeah, so Moab, not a friend of Israel. Actually, God was so angered by what Moab did that in Deuteronomy chapter 23, Israel is pretty much commanded to treat Moab as their forever mortal enemy. It says in Deuteronomy 23 that they should never allow a Moabite into the assembly of Israel and never allow a Moabite to, or and never allow anyone of Israel to seek the peace and prosperity of Moab. Like, never do anything good for them because of the evil that they did to you. And Naomi's family decided to go there. They were desperate. Desperate times pushed them to desperate measures, and they made decisions, living as sojourners, going to Moab, they made decisions that they thought were completely unthinkable. But that's what suffering does. It turns up the heat, and when things boil over, we frantically try and turn it down, and we can burn ourselves by our own decisions. Maybe you've made what you previously thought were unthinkable decisions. What frame of thinking, what pattern of thinking, what type of mindset can trigger unthinkable decisions in our lives? I sat down with the director of our soul care, Mark Hosh, this week to ask him as he counsels people, people who are suffering, what are patterns that he sees that motivates frames of thinking and mindsets that can trigger unthinkable decisions in people's lives? And together we recognize there's probably at least five different mindsets that can trigger unthinkable decisions. And I wonder if you've made decisions like this or have a frame of mind like this. Some people look at their suffering and they think, it can't get better. It, it can't get better. And as a result, despair becomes their new normal. And whenever they look at life, they only look at life through a filter of despair. You've been waiting for change for so long but you've been disappointed too much. And, and you're not gonna let yourself get your hopes up again because it hurts too much to be disappointed. And you've tried for so long and you've seen so, read, read so many books and seen so many counselors and made you, maybe you just feel like, I don't have the energy. I don't have the willpower. And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna settle for this because there's no way it could get better. Some people look at their suffering and they say, I deserve it. And for some reason, because they listen to the lies of their flesh or the world or the enemy, guilt and shame become their new normal. And everything they look at looks like this. And 
Guilt and shame will keep us in shackles and make us treat ourselves in a way that God doesn't treat us. Guilt and shame will keep someone connected to a person who's mistreating them, even when they should be leaving that person and looking for safety. Guilt and shame can make people who've known they've done wrong think that they should intentionally do something even worse because they deserve to be punished for the last thing that they did. It can't get better. I deserve it. Some people look at their suffering and say, I don't, des I don't deserve it. I don't deserve this. And anger or self-pity becomes their new normal. The world hits us down, so we're always trying to hit back. We feel like we've been victimized, so no matter, no matter who I deal with, I'm treating everyone else like a villain because I just feel like a victim. Or the world hits us down and we just stay down. And all I can see myself as a victim, but I'm not gonna fight back. But we, people can use their victim identity as justification to continue doing behavior that they know dishonors God. And when they're asked why they do this, and it's like, because it wasn't fair what happened to me. Just let me have this. It can't get better. I deserve it. I don't deserve it. Some people look at their suffering and think, it never happened. Can we, try, can we just not talk about, can we just try and avoid this? It never happened. And fear becomes their new normal. You know, a lot of us in a lot of pain, but a lot of us don't share that pain or try to mask that pain either because they feel like they need to hold some kind of reputation and they're worried about losing their reputation or because they're worried about the fear of disappointing someone. And so, so people who are consumed with fear like this because they just want to avoid the suffering, they become obsessed with their identity, with what they look like, with how they're perceived. They're obsessed with being the model son, the model daughter, the exemplary student, the devout Christian. And they become so obsessed with the outside while they're eroding on the inside. And they, and they still won't tell anybody. Maybe that's you. It can't get better. I deserve it. I, I don't deserve it. It never happened. Some people look at their suffering and think, I can't deal with this. I can't deal with this. And escapism becomes the new normal. We long for the escape of sleep because we just can't deal with the thoughts in our minds. We long for the escape of the weekend because we just want to get away from work. We long for the escape of entertainment. We escape by numbing the pain of our suffering with any other means possible. We numb the pain through sexual addiction. We numb the pain through substance abuse. We numb the pain through self-harm. Has your thinking led you into any of these new normals? Have you found yourself triggered to make decisions that you previously thought were unthinkable? It, it goes bad to worse. There's a glimmer of hope at the end of this, but it only goes from bad to worse here. Suffering may devastate your life, but there is hope Hope can be found when we wait on God. God does, you don't need to stay here. We can, we'll see how through Ruth's, Naomi's story, the Lord can provide hope.
But unfortunately, at first, before it gets better, it gets worse. Suffering can trigger unthinkable decisions. Suffering can also ruin life as we know it. And maybe you feel like that's happened to you. Look at verse 3 to verse 5, and we're going to see the depth of the ruin that Naomi experienced. Verse 3 says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died. So the woman was left without her sons and without her husband. The death of Naomi's family completely ruined life as she knew it because of two reasons. One, it completely ruined, seemingly, the future of her family, and that was really important for an Israelite's identity. It also ruined her sense of self-worth in the way that their culture attributed self-worth at the time. See, why is it significant that her family line was broken? Well, God promised that the people of Israel's blessing, their inheritance, was tied and connected to the land that he promised them to have, the promised land in Canaan. And, and every family had share of property in their land. And God was supposed to bless, would bless the land and prosper the land. And that was their blessing and inheritance. But if, and that was what was passed down from generation to generation. But if the family line was cut off, the inheritance for the family was gone. And first, Ruth's husband dies. But she still has two sons. Maybe there's hope. And it looks like there is. They get married. They took Moabite wives, Oprah and Ruth. Maybe they can keep the family line going. But look what it says next at the end of verse 4. They lived there about 10 years. And Malon and Chilion died? Wait, ten, married? 10 years? Where's the birth announcement? Did, did they have any grandkids for Naomi? Was there another generation that would take up the family name? Ironically, Naomi's family left their home to find fertile land, but their family's future was broken in a foreign land by infertility. And their share in the inheritance seemed to be perished. Not only their family line was broken, not only was their family line ruined, but Naomi's own identity and sense of self-worth in the way that culture attributed self-worth at that time was in tatters. See, in our modern Western North American culture, we have a diverse economy. And men and women have a lot of opportunities to pursue different types of career and what they want to be able to live their lives. It wasn't really like that in Naomi's time. She lived in an ancient culture, an Eastern culture, a Mesopotamian culture, and it was primarily an agricultural economy. And in a culture like this, the culture attributed self-worth to women specifically in their roles within their domestic responsibilities. A woman's value was primarily through becoming a wife to a husband, through becoming a mother to children. Not that way anymore, but that's the way it was back then. Yet, Naomi was a wife, but she became widowed. She was a mother, but she became motherless. And everything that the culture would have attributed value and self-worth to was just vanished. Like how 
a single spark of fire can turn into a raging wildfire that destroys an ecosystem like it kind of is doing in the Amazon right now. Like, like overpollution and the change in water temperature can take one of the most beautiful wonders of the natural world in the Great Barrier Reef in Australia where the most beautiful fish and the most beautiful wildlife lived and because of change in water temperatures and over pollution, now it's just a graveyard. Something so beautiful can be completely ruined and suffering can ruin life as we know it. And I wonder if you felt like it has for you. Mark and I also asked together, what are the things that people put their self-worth in today? <clears throat> what are the ways that we put our value in today differently from ancient times? That we feel like, if I lost this, I would lose everything. Maybe you feel like life is ruined because of unmet expectations. Maybe you had the next 10 years of life mapped out. If you married that boy or got that job or got into that university but then you didn't. And everything you expected life to be for the next decade was emptied out because of one decision that you couldn't control. Maybe you feel like life is ruined because you were mistreated. And what happened to you was probably wrong, maybe even criminal. But maybe it's been years and you can't feel like you can get any traction in life, no traction in job, no traction in your relationships, no traction in your finances, no traction in your mental health, and you're stuck in a rut. But maybe it's not because of any residual effects of what happened when you're mistreated. Maybe you're stuck in a rut created by your own bitterness and your own unforgiveness. And life feels ruined. Maybe life feels ruined because a trusted loved one is gone. And they were like the foundation of your life, and they were always there, and they kept you stable, but... Maybe they moved away. Maybe they passed on. And when the foundation was gone, the house just crumbled in. Maybe you feel like life is ruined because of your own failure. You thought you'd be way ahead of where you are now. You see other people married with kids. You see other people with jobs going on vacations across the world, and you don't have the money for that. And you haven't had a stable relationship the last months in so long. But maybe you know it's your own fault. And maybe you know you, can, you aren't able to get ahead because you're still shackled in the same sinful addictions that you've been addicted to since high school. And you can't get ahead because of your own failure. When life gets like this, we start to ask hard questions. We start to ask hard questions of God. And, and as we ask hard questions, we ask them kind of like an angry way in a doubtful way, and we take steps away from God. See, this is the third way that suffering can really devastate life as we know it. It can trigger unthinkable decisions. It can ruin everything that we put our value in. Suffering can also breed doubt and anger. And you might even think that you're an agnostic or don't even believe in God. But uh, the only time you do believe in God is when you need an object to be angry at. You know, we don't have any indication that Naomi herself was angry or doubtful, but the writer writes in such a way that makes the reader read it and ask why. Because there's so little detail here. It's just 
They went to Moab. Elimelech died. The sons died. There's no detail. Why, why did this happen? You know, when you read an obituary, there's gener generally more information in the obituary than on the tombstone, right? On the tombstone, you just get name, birth, death, maybe a quote or a Bible verse. In the obituary, there's a little more detail. And if someone you love or someone you know from your past, you hear that they die, it's helpful to grieve and to grasp it when you have a reason why. And obituaries give reasons, you know. They might say the person's name, how they died, who they're survived by, how they lived and what they're remembered by, how you can give flowers, where you can donate to. There's a little more information to help you come to grips with it. But the writer writes with so little detail because he wants the reader to ask why. Why did God allow Elimelech to die? Was God punishing him for going to Moab? Why did God allow Orpah and, and Ruth not to bear children? Why did God let Malon and Chilion, the boys, die? Was God punishing them for marrying foreigners? What's going to happen to Naomi? Where's God in the middle of this? You know what's a little ironic? Elimelech's name. Elimelech's name means God is king. But now the, husband, or the wife of the man whose name means God is king, is left wondering, is God actually in control here? As I said, there's many reasons that I love the scriptures. One of the reasons is that no subject is taboo, and we can look into the Bible and see and come to grips with any ex human experience that we could live with. One of the reasons I also love the scriptures is because the scriptures give us breathing room to ask hard questions and not be judged for being a bad Christian. Some of us, when we have these hard questions, we just bury them down because we think for some reason, if, if I look like I'm doubting, I'm gonna look like a bad Christian and I just need to put on a smile and shake someone's hand and then go out of church and hide it all. Listen to what David said in Psalm 13. Listen to the questions that David asked. He said in Psalm 13, verse 1 and 2, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Scripture gives breathing room to ask questions like this, and asking questions like this with a humble heart is actually a form of worship. When we step out of humility and start accusing God, we're kind of getting out of bounds here and claiming God to be God on our terms than letting God be God on his terms. But read the Psalms. Read the book of Lamentations. Read the passages in the book of Job. You can ask the hard questions and not be afraid of asking the hard questions in a way of worship. The word the Bible has this for this is called lament. You have breathing space to not bury it down, but ask the questions with a humble heart and recognize that even though it seems like God is not in control, he still is king in the midst of this. And this is where we see God step back into the story after verse 5 and verse 6. 
And this is where the story finally gives us a glimmer of hope after going from bad to worse. Suffering can devastate our lives. It can trigger unthinkable decisions. It can ruin life as we know it. It can breed doubt and anger. Suffering may devastate your life, but hope can be found when we wait on God because God will prove faithful again. He will. The Lord has been faithful to the people who have worshipped him for generation after generation after generation, way surpassing the years that we've ever lived. And as he's been faithful before, so he will be faithful again. Hope is the expectation that things will get better because God keeps his promises. And hope works when we allow our expectations to keep in step with our faith in God's promises. And hope will work because God will prove faithful again, but we need to wait on God like Naomi needed to wait on God. Look at verse 6. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. God steps back into the story. You see, it's likely that God visited his people and gave them food, probably because if the famine was a result of their turning away from God to idols, it seems like they would have turned back to God. And when we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. So it seems like the collective nation of Israel was repenting for their sin and God visited their land again by providing them the blessing of a prosperous land. And this word visit is very unique. It's not just like a simple hi and then bye. It's, it's looking after, caring for, like a parent cares for a child. You know, parents might observe their children struggling with a menial task because they don't have the finger dexterity, and parents could know, I could easily step in and fix this now. I could easily step in and keep them from being hurting now. But sometimes parents can just step back and watch, and their child might not even know that they're watching, but then they're struggling with it and struggling with it, and then as soon as the child says, help, a good mom, a good dad will step in and give their child the help they need. The child might not know that the parent is there watching, but the child knows that as soon as they call it for help, mom and dad are there. And that's the same way that the Lord visits his people again. They turned from him. They went to idolatry, but he didn't turn from them. He was waiting for them to come back. And when they called out, he came to them. He provided. He provided rain in the famine. The whole nation needed to collectively repent, and they were. But what could Naomi herself do to be able to provide the rain in the midst of the famine? What can the National Guard do when there's a wildfire and they're shipping in uh, um, water from the ocean to try and put out the fire, but they know that's not enough and they know they need rain? What can they do? What can you do if you're struggling with your thoughts and you can't sleep and it's 4 a.m. and you haven't fallen asleep at all and you know you're not going to fall asleep and you're just waiting for the next day to come and you're waiting for the sun to rise? What can you do? All you can really do is wait. All Naomi could really do for God to visit was wait. But how will I know God will come? How will I know the sun will shine? How will I know the rain will fall? There's a rainy season every year. 
And it might feel like you're in the famine dry season now, but the rainy season is coming. It might feel like the middle of the night now and it's dark as ever, but the sun is coming. It came before, it will come again. God was faithful before, he will be faithful again. And you can know this is proven true because of the way that God provided his only son, Jesus Christ. Because he was faithful enough to provide you Jesus, he will provide anything you need, anything I need. Romans 8 verse 31 says this. It says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You may go through, be going through tremendous suffering right now. But the worst suffering humans could ever experience is the suffering of hell. Being separated from God for eternity. Yet God already provided a way for you to be saved from that suffering in his son. And if he saved you from the worst of all sufferings, how will he not also give his children what they need in this suffering which you are in now? Brother, you may have desperately made decisions that you thought were previously unthinkable. Sister, you may feel like your life is ruined as you know it. Suffering may devastate your life, but hope can be found when we wait on God. Waiting on God means, I know I'm not in control. Waiting on God means, I believe you're in control. And waiting on God means, I'll patiently endure as I trust your timing. I'm not in control. You are in control. And I'll patiently endure in your timing. But you might wonder, like, can, will he really? Could, can, is he even able? Yes. Isaiah 40 says that those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall walk and not grow weary. They shall run and not be faint. But, but how can I know? I can't get hurt again. Then remember Psalm 25 verse 3. Psalm 25 verse 3 says, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. You may not see God in the darkness. You may not, you may feel weary in the famine. Wait on God and he will not leave you hung out to dry. Wait on God and our promise keeping, promise making God will not let you be put to shame. He will give you hope. Would you stand with me as we pray together? Father, I admit that this is, a hard, uh, this is a hard command to obey, to wait on you. In our, it's, so, uh, it's so counterintuitive, Lord God. We want to do something. We want to we wanna maintain control. We want to order things. But God, help us recognize that we're weak. And help us recognize that that's good because your word says that your power is made perfect in weakness. Help us to believe that it's to my advantage to be weak because when I am weak, you are strong. Forgive us for being a self-sufficient, independent, self-reliant people who think that we meager creatures whose lives are as here and gone as the wind, who are one speck of a generation in a seashore of sand. Forgive us for thinking that we're enough, Lord God. We're not enough. We need you. 
And help us to believe that you are able, Lord God. Help us to believe that you are willing, Lord God. And help us remember the gospel and wait on you. Knowing that as you've been faithful before, you will be faithful again. What you've done before, so you can do again. Help us and give us hope in Jesus' name. Amen.